You know, it's funny. One of the things a lot of romance readers hate is miscommunication in books, where miscommunication is the like reason why characters can't be together. But I feel I've been married for almost 20 years. My husband and I have been together since university. Um, communication is still really hard. Like it is still something that is challenging in our relationship. And that is something I really explore in, in Meeting at the Lake. I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. This is Kobo in Conversation. My guest is the Canadian journalist and best-selling novelist Carly Fortune, author of the new book Meet Me at the Lake. It is a summer love story of Fern Brookbanks, who's forced to grieve the sudden death of her mother while trying to run her family's lakeside resort alongside the manager who happens to be her ex. Unbeknownst to her, Fern's mom had hired a consultant just before she died, and unfortunately, it turns out to be Will Baxter, the guy who stole Fern's young heart years ago and then banished from her life, but never from her thoughts. Carly Fortune, welcome to Kerber. Hi, thank you for having me. We have a lot to talk about here. We have the story itself. We get to talk about romance as a category and as an avocation, cottage country as a love story setting, leaving day jobs and executive roles for the life of an author. But let's start with Fern. Meet Me at the Lake runs along two parallel tracks, one in present day with grief-stricken Fern dealing with the Brookbanks Resort, and in the past with Fern just out of university, living in Toronto, and just starting her life. Can you introduce us to these two versions of the main character in this book? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. We first meet Fern at the resort. She's uh, 32 years old. She's just returned home several weeks ago after the death of her mom. And um, she is kind of at a, I think in both timelines, she's at a crossroads and is you know, at, on the one hand, grieving her mother, but on the other hand, trying to um, run this business. And it's becoming increasingly apparent to her that the resort isn't doing so well. And uh, she's realizing that she's going to actually have to roll her sleeves up and, and pay attention to what's happening and start to get involved in the resort, which is something that she has spent her, uh, you know, the last 10 years uh, avoiding. She's never wanted to work at the resort um, and she's kind of built her own life in the city. I think Fern is a very confident person. She is a very um, ambitious person, but right now she's been thrown for a loop in in the present. And in the past, um, she is, again, at a really important moment in her life, um, that period of time where we're graduating for school and like launching out into the world, um, except Fern is following a path that has been set for her. She's going to go back home and work with her mom at the resort and leave the city behind. And she's just kind of realizing that she hasn't made the most of her time in Toronto and she's she's grieving the end of her um, years in the city and her freedom. And um, but she's she's kind of accepted that her her future is to work at the resort. And there's a number of reasons for that in her in her past why she's kind of following this this path her mom led for and so when we see her in these two moments she's there's kind of like 
the moments where she's wavering on things um, and isn't really quite sure about either the path she's on or what path to choose. You know, is she going to stay at home and run the resort, go back and work at her job in the city? Um, and yeah, so she's at these kind of, not exactly, I guess in the present, she's in, in a bit of a crisis and in, um, and I would say in the past, she's at, at, a, at an emotional crisis, really. Yeah. Her mother's death means that she has to return to Brookbank's resort, which is in the summer cottage country north of Toronto. Can you paint that scene for us? What is that place like and what does it mean for her? Yeah, so I had this vision of Brookbank's resort. Um, it just kind of came to me in the middle of the night. I um, pictured this classic uh, lakeside resort, the kind of place that was built in the late 18, 1800s or early 1900s that had this big main lodge, sort of stone and, and log main lodge on the top of the hill overlooking the lake and then rows of cabins kind of leading out from uh, down paths around around the resort and that there would be you know this whole kind of like cast of characters at the resort some people have been going there for decades um and that burn you know has been brought up on the property there there's a family house that's on the property so she has grown up um with not only working at the resort and her her mom her grandparents working at the resort but also being surrounded by the guests at at the resort and i uh, chose to set it uh, kind of on the eastern part of muskoka partially because i took a dig at muskoka in my first book every summer after there's a character who um says something like it's not real cottage country and it's if you might as well like muskoka is too full of torontonians you might as well stay in toronto um and so i was like you know what i need to make it up to muskoka i'm gonna i'm gonna set the launch i'm gonna set the lodge in muskoka and uh it's a place that is both home for fern and and um holds a lot of great memories but also um is full of kind of her some of her past mistakes and um she had you know some problems with her her mom growing up how much her mom worked um and they went through their own challenges and so it holds a lot of uh a lot of different kinds of emotions for her yeah that's coming home coming home always kind of feels that way mm -hmm. and then we have the arrival or the return of literally tall dark and handsome <laughs> will who figures prominently if briefly in her past and now unexpectedly in her present and so the wheels begin to turn. Okay. Your novels, both this and your your first novel, Every Summer After, are love stories. And and this particularly, I think we can say, is you know, a, a second chance romance specifically. Do you see yourself as a romance novelist? Oh, yeah, absolutely. 100%. <laughs> Um, there's a whole lexicon of romance themes that fans are familiar with, friends to lovers, enemies to lovers, second chance, you know, bad boy, good girl, bad girl, good boy. Is, <laughs> is this a realm that you're familiar with or that you've immersed yourself in? Romance tropes? Yeah. I was not familiar with romance tropes when I began writing uh, every summer after 
and I was aware, you know, I was a I I was a new romance reader. I I started reading romance um in at the beginning of 2019 and uh so I could identify I could see the patterns myself as a reader, but I okay. I was not aware that um people have favorite tropes and there are most hated tropes and I, like that was new to me as I kind of started my publishing journey. Okay, so this is this is interesting. We're going to dig into this a bit because I I love talking to authors who work in romance because and this is a bit of a sweeping generalization, but there's this kind of continuum where at one end are authors who who love the genre and will happily talk about you know, tropes and themes, you know, at this almost technical level. You know, they'll say things like, "Oh, oh, I always wanted to write." A second chance love with a side of one of them is famous. And so, you know, that's what I did. And then other authors at kind of the other end of the spectrum who just go from a blank page of characters and settings and the love story emerges from there. And so it's interesting that you kind of you know, started in writing romance without this, um, you know, without all of that kind of technical genre backstory um and have become familiar with it later so where would you place yourself on my totally made up and artificial romance author spectrum i think i probably at the latter end of the spectrum for me um and i'm i'm new at this so i i maybe this will change like the tropes so far um i think i think tropes are like can be part of the author's toolkit uh -huh. so when you're generating ideas um like for me it's not it's not something that i reach for as i'm generating ideas however that like i have tried to pitch i've been pitching ideas that are like rivals to to love like i really want to write an enemies to lovers or a, a rivals to lovers book which is my favorite trope and i still haven't done it <laughs> so i've not been successful in idea generating based on tropes for me um it's been about um the, well both books really like the setting kind of came first and uh -huh. um and then like the, the relationship between the characters which then can be then you can bucket everything into a trope really like it, sure. you know this isn't um so it's kind of figuring it kind of comes after that and i i wasn't even sure like you know meet me at the lake is like the i guess the most the clearest trope is second chance romance but i'm like yeah but is it is it <laughs> but it's so fun to see how readers assign tropes to the books um and how specific they get you, like with every summer after the trope the specific trope was friends to lovers to strangers to lovers uh, yes that is what it is and there are there are you know many books that fall under under that like very specific umbrella so, um, it, and I love tropes as a reader. I'm also very, I'm very into them, but so far for me, it hasn't been, um, what I've used to develop the idea, but it's not my starting right. place. Not yet. Until I can get my enemies to lovers book. <laughs> well, well, that's the thing. Once, once you become familiar with them, you start to think about which ones you like and which ones really resonate for you and you know, which ones you gravitate towards. And then, you know, it becomes a lens through which you start to, to look at these books, which I just find fascinating. So thank you for indulging me, nerding yeah, out in the, no, you know, in, so in the structure of romance. 
I'm so into it. I I think if I had tons of free, I'm obsessed with tropes. I just uh, as an onlooker and some and if I had tons of time, I would pitch the New Yorker a piece about tropes and investigating tropes. And my my headline for it is everything's a trope. Um, and because I really do feel that that every there is a trope for everything. Anyway, Perfect. I'll go I'll go down the trope road with you any day. Amazing. This story runs on two parallel tracks. The, the first one, as we said, is in present day with grief-stricken Fern coming to terms with the fact that she's inherited her mother's resort, you know, a place deeply associated with both her mother and her childhood. And then the second track is in the past with Fern living in Toronto, just graduated and starting her life. As a writer, you take on the challenge of having to show your characters having changed over time. You Essentially, you have to find two voices for the same characters. How naturally did Fern's past and present come to you? Um, I thought I had a good handle on Fern from the moment I thought of her. Like, I just felt like I really knew Fern from day one. That doesn't necessarily mean that she showed up on page. Sure. Like I could see her in my my mind. It took took many drafts to to have that um get that right on the page. But I um I really felt like I knew her. How, however, the first draft of the book um in the past timeline, it was set at an it was set the book was set entirely at the resort, and the characters were younger. They were graduating from high school rather than university, and I um. It was my editor's suggestion to age them up and put them in Toronto. And there were a lot of reasons why that was an excellent suggestion. Um, the main one being that, one, I was like so excited to write about Toronto. And and two, it allowed me to explore this idea that of how you just don't know where you're going to end up in life. And you make plans for yourself. And, uh-huh. you know, life has other plans for us. And... Um, and that's really what the book is about. So ha- having them be a little bit older and a bit further along in their kind of future planning made a lot more sense to explore that. And because I had written Fern and Will as teenagers, um, when I started my second draft, I really knew them. Um, I'd written them as in their 30s. I'd written them as teenagers. And so when I met them as 20-somethings, I, I, I really knew these characters um, Will was actually a very difficult character to write, but um, yeah, I've spent I've spent so much time with them. But I, um, I also I just like I think I really like Fern. Like I think of all the characters I've written, um, she was the one that I'd want to be my friend. I think maybe because she's a little like a bit of a tough nut to crack. That I like uh-huh. that in people. It's like oh, I've won them over. Like yay me. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was she was always like with me from the beginning but it it took a lot of time to kind of get that get that right fern's mother is something of an echo in this book Mm -hmm. she's everywhere and nowhere you know even at the point in the timeline when she's still alive she's off stage was fern's mother always going to be just outside of the story that you had to tell the first so when i came up with the idea it was in the middle of the night and I there were three things I thought of. The first was the resort. The second was Fern having to come home to the resort following her mother's death and being really um, 
mixed up about that. And then the third thing was um, a series of diary entries, a diary uh, that Fern's mom had written in the summer of 1990, the summer she became pregnant with Fern, and that these diary entries um, Fern would read at some point in the book or at some point in her journey. And they would seem to tell of Fern's mom's summer romance. But actually what they would be showing is Fern's mother's love for her daughter and that there would be this journey of Fern um, and and her, her Fern and her mom struggling, um, butting heads, and Fern realizing how important she was to her mom. And that um, that was, I can't, that I thought of before the love story side of it. Will is a character who undergoes a lot of change in the space between these, you know, these two periods of time. Well, and you said like he was, he was a tricky character to write. What made him so difficult? Well, so the, the, you know, the premise for this book, which is, or the hook of the book is that these two characters spend 24 hours together. They have this intense connection. They share their secrets. They make plans for the future and they make a pact to meet a year later. And Fern shows up and Will doesn't. And I knew that from the beginning. Um, and what, with what became hard is figuring out what his problem was. And it, it is one of the challenges of romance to keep your character. Like, I, my, I naturally want to put my characters together and have them be friendly and everything. Like, I, I think the first draft of this book, my editor was like, oh, this they're just so lovely together. Like, we, like there's no hurdles for them. I'm like, wow, isn't that so delightful to read? But... <laughs> It was it, so it, it is, you, you know, you need to figure out a way um, to create tension in the re relationship and what the kind of um, the dark moment is for this this couple and really um, getting to the root of Will's um, the stuff that the issues he was dealing with took that was tricky. And, um, you know, it took a lot of self-exploration um to figure will out then and then once i kind of had that in my mind to try to show that to the reader like it would that was all um that took many many drafts i was i was calling him slippery will for a, a long time um but it, like the it was easy to show the surface level ways that he had changed you know in the past he's this kind of idealistic artist in the present, he's a slick businessman, but showing the subtler changes um, uh, took a lot of work. Something that Meet Me at the Lake and your first book, Every Summer After, share is that they're anchored in two Canadian places, Toronto and Muskoka. And for decades, there's been kind of this, this hesitancy or this reluctance for authors to set their stories in Canada. And uh, I'm interested in whether that was something that you that you thought about or you considered when you were starting to write these books. Um, so when I was starting to write Every Summer After, this was a project I took on completely for myself. I 
had always wanted to write a book um, and I didn't think I would ever get around to it. And when I decided that I was going to do it, I was going to write a book, I was going to finish it by the end of the year, I wanted, I knew I wanted to write about how I grew up. And I grew up um, in a town called Barry's Bay, which is very small, 1,200 people um, in eastern Ontario. Uh, we lived on the lake. My parents had a restaurant at an inn. And uh, we were, our house was in, on a dirt road in the bush. And most of the other, I don't know, there may be like 11 residences uh, on the road. And most of them were cottages. And cottagers would come and go um, with the seasons. And, you know, you'd grow up, you'd grow up with these people and see them at Christmas or in the summer. And I wanted to write about that, that kind of like, you know, cottaging experience. Um, I wanted to write about the lake, um, growing up at the lake. And so when I was, when I began, I, I just set, set it exactly where I grew up. Um, but when I got further into writing the book, uh, I was like, well, this kind of seems like a book. Maybe it could be a book. And, um, and then I started to think to myself, oh, yeah, no, I wonder if this setting's going to be a, be a problem. Um, I wonder if having a Canadian setting would be a barrier to finding a broader audience. And I, you know, worked as a journalist and, and reaching an audience is very important to me. And uh, I was so, it was so fascinating um, to talk to agents when I was trying to find an agent. And then later with, uh, with editors about what I asked every single agent and I asked every single editor whether they thought the Canadian setting would be a problem. And I got various responses. Um, but uh, both the agent who I have, who's based in LA, and, and my editor, who's based in New York, loved the setting. And um, um, and I think, uh, having seen the reaction to Every Summer After, the setting being, being um, you know, a, a bit different than some you know what you typically see it's not a it's not a beach on a, it's <laughs> on a beach in the u.s it's not you know it's um kind of special i think that helped i think that was one of the things that people really loved about the book it felt escapist in a way and canadians of course love like seeing home in on the page um so uh and then and then after that i you know my team is like really happy to have Canadian settings right right now. Um, <laughs> even you know when we were talking about my second book before every summer after it came out, I kind of thought that I would be asked to write a setting up, you know, not a Canadian setting. That has not been the case. But the majority of people listening don't live in Canada or Ontario or Toronto. Yeah. Burns Resort, that Banks Resort, is in Muskoka which is the oldest and most well-known summer cottage area north of Toronto. And for people who don't live there, if you're from New York, you can kind of compare it to the Catskills or upstate New York or their shades of Hampton sort of, or like Tahoe if you're in San Francisco or summer homes in France or seaside villages in the UK, but it's really its own thing. So tell me about like, what were the, the elements or the feel that you wanted to make sure 
that you captured that people people got when you were trying to describe that life in that setting um meet me at the lake which is set in muskoka it's really it's mostly contained at the resort so it was really it was more of the feeling less of the so like my when i think of muskoka i think of the fancy lakes like the 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 big extreme like the, where the cottages look like mansions where you've got cindy crawford zooming around in her boat and fancy lakes the fancy fancy lakes and, and i when i was a journalist i went to a party on one of those lakes and we were flown it was hosted by um a, a premium vodka brand we were flown in on these like pri like little uh seaplanes and um it was like and but it was like that's just what you how you travel up there and so that is not the muskoka i was trying to convey uh -huh. i really i really wanted to um which i think would be i would love to read books that um in that version of muskoka for sure but um i was i was trying to capture more of a like dirty dancing resort vibe or i think it's season it's season two or three of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which has um, a few episodes set at a, yes. a lakeside resort, which I like. I loved that so much. So that was the vibe I was um, going for. And then with Every Summer After, which is set in Barry's Bay, so that's outside of, outside of Muskoka, but still caught. It's still cottage. It's still a cottage, cottaging area. Okay. It's cottage country, closer to. Um, it, it's not as fancy. It's not as populated as Muskoka. But I was really trying to get how get at how um, the towns are just transformed in the uh, like there's an off season and an on season in the summer. These like sleep, sleep sleepy towns um, just are taken over <laughs> with cottage cottagers and tourists, and it really um, it when you live there, it's like quite something to experience, and it's fun. It's fun when people come in for the summer and then. Um, and then for some, for people who have cottages, your life is kind of divided into these two places. So you have your city self where you're like, if you're young, you know, you, where your school friends are and where your, your city clothes are. And then there's, you're like, you have this entirely different cottage existence. Um, and I think a lot of young kids really look forward to like that it's so it's like special it's like that if people go to summer mm -hmm. camp like you have your summer camp self and your school self or if you if you rode a school bus growing up there's like the, the like who you are at the school but then there's an entirely different ecosystem on the bus um so cottaging is kind of like that at the at the other setting that it, that's alive here is is toronto and canada is generally united in its dislike of toronto and toronto is united in its uh complete lack of interest in what the rest of canada thinks about it and and you have people in the book who take both sides of that position yeah we have yeah will who's kind of from the west coast we have fern's best friend whitney who treats visits to the city as a mission rather than a vacation were there things you wanted to make sure that we understood about um about Toronto as a as a place and as a city, you know, I really love Toronto, um, and I wanted to show how fun this city is when you are in your early twenties and like at any age, frankly. But um, it and especially the Toronto of ten years ago, it was a very special time in this city. Um, 
people were we had a horrible mayor, mayor and people were suddenly interested in city politics and all these new restaurants were opening up and it just it felt like the city was in bloom and i really wanted to kind of capture how magical toronto can be and how much it offers and it's it's such a it's such a um short it's only 24 hours in the city but figuring out all the places like the places that i felt were special and would be special to people who are in their early 20s and Mm -hmm. taking readers on a journey through the city was so um fun i just i really just wanted to show the magic on honestly that was that was my aim with with toronto and of course you do see kind of how other people pers- like whitney just really dislikes toronto and one of the tensions between fern and whitney is that fact that whitney does not want to visit her friend in the city that she does not enjoy exploring the city and one of the things that draws fern to will is his love of toronto and um you know their 24 hours is exploring the city together this this structure that you have of of present day and you know a previous life years in the past and it's sort of wrapped around cottage country is it is that combination of past and present work so well because these are places where we grew up but keep coming back to like you can't be there without also being with all of your past summer selves oh that's a great question i have not thought about it like that i um you know i feel like the now then timeline switching really when you have characters who um there's a big kind of there's in both books there's a big gap in time between when the characters have seen each other and there's so much growth and the ways that characters change over that period of time and the kind of switching between now and then really helps to show you know who people were who they are but i also feel like it um it really drives the plot forward when there is a like there's there's mysteries um especially in the present timelines for for both my books where you're tr- you're trying to kind of figure something out and you're uh, one of the ways you're trying to answer that is by dipping back into the past and it just for me has really helped push the narratives forward i also am just such a fan of backstory i think it's pr- i think it's maybe not a strength as a writer because when i'm generating ideas um I'm thinking less of what actually makes the book compelling and more of these intricate backstories between characters that may or may not have any place in the story. But I and I just I'm so interested in um, backstory and I'm really interested in characters who have a history together. And I'm um, I love like thinking, you know, I think there are people in our lives who just kind of like stick to our ribs, whether romantic or not, but people that that really make a big impact on on us. And then and then they're not part of our lives. And having like resurfacing those people and exploring what that's like is um, I like that. I like that. So this is where I we go into confessional mode. And I say one of the reasons that these books resonated so much for me is that I found you know, my first love. And also much, much later, my beloved wife, both the same person, by the way, at my grandparents' cottage. <laughs> and and I have, you know, I have my own collection of like magic 
childhood, teenage memories on lakes and docks and canoes and tin boats. And that's a whole other conversation. I love this. I'm wondering if there were things from your own life that you that you pulled into these settings. Were there were there things from your memory that you brought into this? Yes. Um uh certainly for every summer after, like the basically this those summers that those uh characters spend together are like exactly how I grew exactly <laughs> how I grew up. Um, like precisely. There is, you know, there's this rock on the, the lake is Kaminiskeg Lake. That's the lake I grew up on. There's a there's this rock that they go jumping off called the jumping rock, which is of what course. I did. Like, you know, I spent my days reading on the dock. Uh, you know, as they get older, they work at the fam- the family restaurant, which is what what I did. Um, there's a yellow boat in that book that they call the banana boat. My my cousins who were like down the road had a yellow boat called the banana boat that had a similar like auga horn. So there is so it was like I just plumbed my childhood for that book for for sure. Um, with Mimi at the lake, it what I um, you know the set the setting of Toronto is you know definitely something that I experienced. It like you know I I went to university in Toronto. I moved from a small town. Um, I I really spent my four years at university with my head down studying studying and working. And I did not get to know the city until much, much later after school. Uh, then, and um, that's kind of what happens to Fern. But m- mostly for that book, it, it was looking at kind of my, it, it was more of my uh, emotional state that I was, uh, and some of my um, kind of struggles that I've dealt with both, you know, as a parent Isn't- and, um, you know, it's funny. One of the things romance, a lot of romance readers hate is miscommunication in books where miscommunication is the like um, reason why characters can't be together. Yeah. But I feel and I think it's something we explore in this book um, and I can I see what, what sometimes where that's annoying. But I feel I've been married for almost 20 years. My husband and I have been together since university. Um, communication is still really hard. Like it is still something that is challenging in our relationship, and I um, that is something I really explore in in Mimi at the Lake. You are a media veteran. You've worked in executive roles in magazines, and publishing at very high level for some big brands, and then you started writing fiction. And I'm wondering, did these two things coexist for a while, or was there a switch that flipped? They did coexist. Um, I was working full time um, at my job at Refinery29 when I wrote Every Summer After. Um, and I was also, um, at, I have two children now, but I had one child at the time. So I wrote that book um, really early in the morning before my family was moving and before I started work. Um, then um so that was done completely while I was working. And, and you know, my husband did extra childcare on the weekends. He'd like take our kid to the park for two hours and I would get some writing done in those windows. Um, Mimi at the Lake, I wrote, so I had my, I wrote it just after my second child was born. And uh, my husband um, took a paternity leave and he looked after our baby while I worked on that book. And I decided in that, period of time to leave my job um and so 
now I am writing full-time, which is a very lucky thing to be doing. To manage major publications like Chatelaine, like Refinery29, is to dedicate a certain amount of your brain constantly to thinking about audience uh-huh. and audience development, where they are, who they are, what they want. Did those reflexes keep firing when you sat down to write fiction? No. And um, I love audience. One of the things, you know, I've worked both in print and in digital. I love the audience end of things in, in digital. Uh-huh. And, you know, it does exist in print too. You know, Chatelaine Magazine, uh, which is kind of for people who aren't Canadian, is um, Canada's longest running women's magazine, national women's magazine. And uh, it used to have um, like a, 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 a uh, kind of, the ideal reader and who exactly who that reader was and she had a name and this was before my time there and her name was robin and she lived in the suburb of ajax and she liked certain kinds of music and there was this whole profile of who that um person was so specific kind of creepy when you think about it but you do that kind of like really careful work thinking about who you're trying to reach and and Uh in digital media you're trying to reach more and more and more and more of those people um, and some of that I found so fun, but I did not think about that at all. When I was uh, writing, I really wrote for myself, like very, very much so. I knew that I wanted a book with a happy ending and that it, so and that it would be a romance because it, it was 2020 and all I could tolerate was a, a happy ending. I needed to feel I like I like it when a book takes you on an emotional journey. I think I like it when a book deals with hard stuff. But at the end of the day, I wanted to give my readers full hearts and feel a little bit better about um, the world. And and um, and every summer after deals a lot with with empathy and forgiveness. And I I think those those both those things are kind of superpowers. But when then when I was but when I was you know kind of after writing it and and talking to agents, my agent asked me you know in our initial phone conversation you know where do you where do you see yourself in five years and i was like well world domination of course like if we're gonna do this thing <laughs> i don't want readers i don't want just my mom and my best friend to read the book <laughs> well one of the reasons i ask is because romance it's one of those you know parts of the reading and writing and publishing world where it's okay to talk about the reader and what they want and it doesn't have to be this walled off experience where it's the author and the words on one side and this kind of undelible reader on the other um like we were talking about before it's okay to talk about expectations and, and fans and themes when so when you sat down um and especially because you were juggling a full-time job where you were thinking about that all the time was this like a, a respite or a break from having to think about the audience or was it just something that naturally turned off on its own and you just went into story and character it totally t- turned off that was not something i thought about at all it was um it was a place for me to play R- writing every summer after was a way for me to reclaim my own creativity i hadn't done any creative work for myself um as an adult, like I had worked for 16 years for publications and worked really hard. And I gave all, all my ideas 
over to my employers. And that's that was my job. But I, wa- I wanted to do something for me and I wanted to entertain myself and I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. And so it, w- I, it was, I, I wrote the book that I wanted to write. It was not, um, I really had an easy, I, that, the audience side of it was so easy for me to shut that off. Uh-huh. I just was having so much fun. I felt like I was discovering something about myself writing that book. Like this is what I'm meant to be doing. Let's spend a little more time on that because I'm I'm interested in what was going on with you at that time. Big career, new family, a lot going on, and yeah. And you decide, you know what I really want to do? I want to add another thing. Mm-hmm. I have a way of doing that to myself. And so, what was what were you reaching for? You know, what did you feel like like you'd lost that you were trying to fill in? I, um, so I launched, uh, Refinery29 Canada, um, in 2018, uh, hired the editorial team. We were a very, we're a small team. Um, we're a small team with huge ambition and a lot of pressure put on us. Um, I am hiring that team, the journalism we did, my proudest work as a journalist, that job um, came after working at Chatelaine, which was a, a, tremendously difficult at the end. I was feeling so burnt out. And I also, I was really unhappy. Like I, I, you know, when you, I worked so hard at rising in my career and, um, I also entered the media business and I, I wanted to work in magazine, magazine business, just as like, it was all kind of collapsing. Uh-huh. Um, and so, so, you know, I was rising, it was, everything is getting tougher and tougher in the industry, just from a business perspective, a purely business perspective. Yeah. And um, I kind of, when I started this job at Refinery29, I was like, this is my dream job. But then when I found myself in it, I it wasn't my dream job at all. And I wasn't happy. And I was fight, I felt like I was fighting all the time, fighting um, for my staff, fighting for myself and, uh, it was, I got off a really stressful phone call um, at work in the summer of 2020. And we were actually staying um, at a cottage that summer, a friend's cottage. Um, he was American and because of the pandemic, he couldn't use his cottage, he couldn't cross the border. So we were staying, um, my family, um, at the lake all summer. So it's really very nostalgic. And I got off this stressful work call and I was just like, I, I am giving, I've given everything to someone else. I need to give something to myself. And it really was this gift that I, I decided at that moment to give myself. And I felt, it's funny because when I was writing, I felt very like, right, like, like, like I was doing something like rebelling. <laughs> I was rebelling against absolutely no one, but I was like, yes, I'm reclaiming this time for myself. Yeah. Like screw everybody who thinks I shouldn't do this. It, but I, so I feel like I was listening to a lot of Fiona Apple. Excellent. And like going on long, long walks and feeling like, yeah, I'm, I am, I'm taking, taking back a piece of myself for myself. But it really was, it really was like that. <laughs> if there were anyone else around here, I would fight them about this. Yeah. 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 It's hard. I think like when you're, when you're, you when you're in a job, when you're in work that um, 
requires so much of you just like from an hour's perspective and an emotional investment and um, creative investment. You know, you give so much to that work. And at least I do. Like, I love working. So I I give a lot over to my work. And then on the other hand, when you're um, in a relationship and have a child, you're giving a lot over to that. And I just I just in 2020, uh, it felt like crucial, critical to do something for myself. Like, if not now, I felt like then when I'm never going to do this if I don't do this now. So we have these two sun-soaked novels. And summer is a great atmospheric setting for a love story. And as a Torontonian, we all know that you know winter is about survival and coping strategies, and um, and summer is when all the good things happen. Uh, as we <laughs> speak right now, the weather in Toronto is starting to turn more. Realizing how much we all miss the sunshine, and um, summer is is also when the reading happens. So how you know? What is your reading life looking like right now, especially as you've moved into this time of of being a full-time fiction author? Yeah, my reading life is busy. I um one of the like perks of being an author is that you get to read other authors' books early. Um it's actually on the other end of the spectrum. It's like one of the most nauseating things about being an author is that you have to ask other authors to read your book early and like perhaps you could read this perhaps you could say something nice about it so we can um it's called a blurb um use those nice quotes to help um publicize the book uh so i have i have i have so have read so many books that are coming out you know this at you know this summer or at the end of this year which i would never have had the opportunity to read these books early if it wasn't for um my job now but i also am just so behind on all like i also have my own kind of stack of you can see it over my shoulder my own stack of books that i'd like to read too and so it's a very busy um reading life and it's quite I think one of the things that's changed for me is um, when I, so I didn't read very much in my 20s and 30s because I read so much for work and I was such a bookworm when I was uh, a kid and when I was in in high school and it really just fell off for me. It just felt like, you know, I needed to kind of zone out and watch TV at the end of the day. But um, when I started reading again, I was reading a lot of YA. I love YA. And then that led to romance. That's how I, dis- I discovered romance through YA. It's actually like it's a path that I think quite a few readers take mm-hmm. um, because there's usually a great little romance story in a YA book. Um, and I, I was voracious. And this is, I think, there are a lot of romance readers who are voracious. They'll read, you know, a book a week. But um, I don't read as much anymore because you know that used to be where i escaped um from the world and now uh-huh. it's like oh well this is my business so even though like i'll pick up a romance and, and i it will so like an escape and i i do enjoy it i'm so so much and i think they give readers so so much goodness it's not like the same kind of escape um uh-huh. so yeah it's just evolving really Carly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
I have been speaking with Carly Fortune, author of the bestseller Every Summer After, and her new book, Meet Me at the Lake. Find it at kobo.com slash conversation. There's a link for you in the show notes. And go ahead and share this episode with a friend or a crush or a long-lost love. Nothing would please us more than being part of a low-key literary courtship. Copeland Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin. Thank you for listening.